0: Good morning. Good morning. All right. Ohio I Uh Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Always a blessing to gather here with you guys to worship the Lord. Um, looking forward to all that God has in store for us today. As the kids and the uh, Bible English participants make their way out, will the rest of you please make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. Okay. This morning we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke and a study that we began last week of Jesus's somewhat intricate, uh, complex teaching known as His Olivet Discourse. Jesus' teaching in this portion of Scripture has been a challenge for many to grasp and understand, and and to be quite frank, it still causes quite a bit of confusion for the body of Christ even today. Uh, There are a number of ways, different ways to look at this portion of Scripture, and volumes of books have been written trying to explain and, and to interpret this portion of Scripture, but still, there remains some doubt as to the overall interpretation of the text before us. Now last week I warned you that we were going to take our time going through this portion of Scripture, and it would probably take us a number of weeks to cover this teaching of Jesus in its entirety. Uh, Last week was part one, and it served really as an overview of why biblical prophecy is important, and a basic introduction to Jesus' all of it discourse, as we noted, what Jesus' teaching was really based upon. Jesus was responding to two questions that his disciples had asked him about. See, as the disciples were exiting the temple late Tuesday afternoon, we are told that they were in awe of the stones that were used in the building of the temple, the overall splendor of the temple, and Jesus said something that would have really blown their minds away when he said, these things which you see, you know, referring to the stones and and the splendor of the temple and all, he said, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And we talked about this last week, the stones that were used by Herod in the renovations of the temple were massive, and and the use of them was seen as a, a wonder of architect and engineering. And in and the idea, really, that one day not one of those stones would be left upon another was an idea that would be near impossible to even imagine. And in response to Jesus' inexplicable claim regarding the temple and the stones therein, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. They had a what question, and they had a when question, okay? They wanted to know when will these things be, and they wanted to know what sign will there be when these things are about to take place. Now, when we look at the whole of this teaching by comparing and cross-referencing what's recorded in the other gospel accounts, uh, Matthew and Mark, we come to understand that these things Luke records for us are not only pertaining to the temple and the destruction of it. In Matthew's gospel, we read that the disciples stated, tell us, when will these things be And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so the disciples wanted to know when it would be that the stones would not be left one on top of another. But they also asked about the sign that would be uh, of Jesus' coming And of the end of the age. And so, what we have in the rest of the Olivet discourse is Jesus' response to those very questions the questions about when the temple and the stones would be dismantled, but also Jesus answering the question about the sign that would indicate his coming and the end of the age. Now, as I said, there's some controversy and, and some misunderstanding and a lot of different interpretations to this portion of Scripture, but there is no controversy about the fact that what Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 21, and where it's the parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and in Mark chapter 13, that Jesus is teaching about a future event, okay? that He is, in fact, speaking for prophetically. All everybody, everybody agrees to that. The debate comes in when we try to figure out just how far into the future Jesus was speaking about. And from that last week, I shared with you three of the more prominent opinions and interpretations that are out there today. There's the preterist view, the historicist view, and the futurist view. And as a way of reminder or perhaps um, information for you if you weren't with us last week, uh, the preterist view believes and holds that Jesus was speaking about events that would take place in the very near future Uh, for the disciples, okay? That Jesus was speaking about events that would take place prior to the destruction of the Jewish temple, which we know occurred in the year 70 A.D., Uh, A full preterist view holds that all Bible prophecy pertaining to Jesus' second coming and the end of the age were fulfilled during the first century. And that today there is no more biblical prophecy to be fulfilled. Everything the Bible speaks of in regard to prophecy, whether referring to Jesus' Olivet discourse or John's revelation, has been fulfilled. The historicist view holds to an interpretation that most of the things Jesus spoke of during the Olivet Discourse have occurred throughout church history, and that most of the Bible prophecies were completed by around the 5th century AD. And so the main emphasis behind the historicist view is taking what Jesus spoke of and matching it to recorded historical events that took place over the centuries following Jesus' time on earth. The futurist view is the belief that most of the things Jesus spoke of during his Olivet Discourse relate to -to yet-to-be-fulfilled future events. Sometimes those who hold to the futurist view are referred to as literalist because they believe that the things Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and things that are mentioned in John's Revelation will be literal events that take place, not just symbolic events, like is often the case with a lot of the preterist and historicist points of view. They have to look at these things and say, oh, that's just symbolic. That's really not talking about that. It, it means this. And so... With the futurists, it's more of a literal translation, or or not a translation, but a literal interpretation. And so because there are different views on how to interpret these portions of Scripture, it's led to confusion, misunderstanding. As I mentioned last week, I hold to more of a futurist viewpoint when it comes to biblical prophecy and Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 21. I believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is still yet to be fulfilled. And I believe the same about many other end times events that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, like the coming of the Antichrist, the battle of Armageddon, okay? the uh, millennial reign of Christ, the uh, great white throne judgment. I, I believe those are literally events that are going to happen and are still yet to happen in the future. And while I hold to the futurist view and will teach this portion from that perspective, I understand that there are some difficulties and problems with the futurist viewpoint. Okay? None of the viewpoints are without issue, and, and they all hold a certain amount of merit when looked at with an open mind. Okay? Last week I made sure to point out the fact that our eschatological viewpoints are not a salvation issue. Okay? We're not saved by having the correct view about end times events, and so this need not be an issue within the church that divides us, where we have to say, oh, well, you know, I can't fellowship with you because you're not, you know, a historicist, or you're not a futurist, or you're, you know, uh, not a preterist, whatever it may be, right? These are not things that are meant to divide us, okay? For me, I just feel there are bigger problems to overcome with the preterist and historicist viewpoints than there are with the futurist viewpoint, and so that's why I stick to that viewpoint. Of course, I could be wrong, um, it could be that it, the preterist got it right, or the historicist got it right, or maybe it's a mix of them, or maybe it's none of them. Okay, and we all don't know anything at all about what's going to happen in the future. Okay, um, and that's why it's so important. That's why it's so important that we slow down a little and we really get into this topic of eschatology and what Jesus was teaching through this famous discourse of His. We want to do our best to study the Scripture for ourselves to understand why. We believe what we believe. To follow Paul's instruction to Timothy when he exhorted him to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Last week, I said that there seemed to be three distinct time frames that are mentioned when uh, it came to Jesus' Olivet Discourse. From verse 8 all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus gives details in regard to the second question The disciples asked regarding the signs of when all these things will be fulfilled. What should we anticipate seeing? What should we expect to see before Jesus is coming and before the end of the age? In Jesus' response, he's going to speak of days of vengeance, days of great distress coming upon the land and wrath upon the people. The other synoptic Gospels, uh, Mark and Matthew, they refer to it as a time of tribulation that will come upon the earth. And a careful examination of the details reveals to us that Jesus lays out events that will take place prior to the tribulation, events that will take place during the tribulation, and then events that will take place after the tribulation. And so today we're going to dive into the first part of those details. We're going to be looking at the events and the things that are to transpire prior to those days of vengeance and great distress and wrath. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 21, verses 8 through 19. And this is going to be part two of our teaching on Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where we will be looking at the beginning of the end and what Jesus describes as taking place prior to his return. I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read not only our text for today, but I'm also going to read our text from last week just to keep the context and the flow together. So we'll read verses 5, 6, and 7 along with 8 through 19 just to keep it in its context, okay? So follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke records the following for us in Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near." Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up and to just learn more of you, Lord, uh, to learn about uh, these end times, uh, signs uh, of your coming and the end of the age. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and you'd give us understanding, that you'd give us insight. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would just um, mold and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Give to us a great anticipation and excitement for you and for your return for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. Before we get into our text, I'd like to take just a few minutes to lay out some good principles when it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy. Our text this morning begins with the exhortation, Take heed, okay? or your translation may read, Watch out or beware. Jesus is giving the disciples a warning, and the word in the Greek carries the sense of being vigilant or being on the lookout. We need to be very careful. We need to pay close attention to what is going on here. We need to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. We need to make sure we don't get things mixed up, that we aren't deceived when it comes to biblical prophecy before us. Now, a great way to avoid deception is to look to the Word of God. But sometimes, even when we have the Word of God, we can struggle with properly understanding the lessons God's Word has for us. And so I want to do just a little more framework for our study. We did some framework last week Remember, we talked about the importance of biblical prophecy. Then going to do a little bit more framework before we get into the text again today as we take this very slowly. And really what I'd like to do is just set up a framework for our study in regards to some good principles to keep in mind for coming to the proper interpretation of God's word, specifically dealing with biblical prophecy. Okay, and I've kind of ranked them. There's five guidelines we're going to look at, uh, basic principles to keep in mind when it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy. And they're kind of ranked from highest to lowest. Number one is first and most, the most important as we kind of go down, they kind of build upon each other uh, as we'll see. And so number one, okay, this is the most important when it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy and specifically um, um well it's number one in interpreting all scripture, but prophecy as well. Okay, as in all good Bible study, prophecy is no different. We must keep the scriptures central and allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures as best we can. Okay. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we must look to the Word of God first and foremost. When we're looking to interpretation, we're trying to figure out what does this mean? We're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, okay? Trusting the Bible and trusting the Holy Spirit to help us interpret what the prophetic Scriptures mean for us today. So that's number one. Number two. We must realize there are types and there are symbols that we do not fully understand yet, and we can make a mistake to assert an interpretation where the Bible does not, okay? Sometimes the Bible doesn't give us specific information, okay? And this is often the error that's made by end-time studies, okay? People will look at current events for signs of the end, and they can sometimes create fear or sensationalism that can lead people to do unreasonable and unbiblical things as they react in fear. And so we don't want to make definitive statements or conclusions where the Bible does not make definitive statements and conclusions, okay? We use the Bible first and foremost, but when the Bible is not, you know... Uh, it's gray or perhaps silent on a matter, we do not want to make definitive statements in those regards. Number three, just as the prophecy given by Jesus about not one stone being left upon another was literal and would subsequently be fulfilled literally, I believe and will teach that many of the prophecies that Jesus gives as literal are to be interpreted literally Okay? Jesus' prediction of the temple's literal destruction that came true in 70 AD helps to give assurance that these other prophecies will also come to pass in a literal sense. We, when looking at Bible prophecy, okay, we want to look at the most literal and basic understanding first and foremost before we start to say, Oh, this is you know, uh, a metaphor or this is just uh, 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 symbol- uh, symbolism. Okay? Number four. While many prophecies should be taken literally and interpreted literally, we must understand that there are some prophecies that are allegorical, and they do use typology. Okay? And so we don't want to be cut off or, or shut off uh, to any types of uh, allegorical uh, references and typology, okay? We need to have an open mind and we must consider those things within their proper context. The context will almost always let us know if we're to take something to be literal or if we're to take something as symbolic. For example, I'll give you an example. Maybe most of us are familiar with this one if you've been with us as we've studied through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah who was to come. In Matthew chapter 17, the disciples asked Jesus the following question. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus responded, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And then Matthew continues and tells us how the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And so, John, he was not literally Elijah, okay, but he was a type of Elijah. Okay? However, the ministry of John the Baptist literally fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah who was to come. And so we have allegory and types or typology that must be considered when interpreting biblical prophecy. Though we look to primarily translate things and understand things literally, we understand that there is indeed typology that is played uh, part of this. And then fifth and finally, there are some cases, I believe, where we will have a type of dual fulfillment of prophecy or multiple fulfillments. There is an original audience and context in which these things were spoken, and they mean something to the original audience. In this case, Luke chapter 21, it is Jesus' disciples, and some of the context will be directed to those who are Jewish. There's also a future audience that reads these prophecies and it will uh, apply to them as well. And as a result, we have what's sometimes termed a dual fulfillment or even multiple fulfillments of prophecy. Many of the Old Testament prophecies in the book of Daniel, as well as in the book of Isaiah, are like this. Similarly, we could say John the Baptist and his ministry is a dual fulfillment of prophecy, that he fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah as a type But there will also be a complete fulfillment of Elijah coming before Jesus' second coming. Luke 21 is an example of this, of dual fulfillments, multiple fulfillments. There will be things that Jesus declares that will be fulfilled in the disciples' lifetime. But they will also be fulfilled in the future as well. And so we have to be very careful when it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy. We want God's word to be the first place we turn to. When it appears Jesus is speaking of literal events, we should look for a literal fulfillment. But we also must keep in mind that Jesus does use allegory and typology in his teachings. We need to be open to something being understood as symbolic or perhaps allegorical. And we even see that sometimes prophecies will have multiple fulfillments, okay? And so that kind of makes sense when you think about the historicist view and they say, hey, this kind of happened at this different times. We say, yeah, you know, yes, it did seems to have been fulfilled there, but yet there seems to also be a future fulfillment of that still needs to come to pass as well. And so you have this mix of views. Well, keeping all these things in mind, let's turn to our text. We'll see if we can understand what Jesus is teaching his disciples to take heed to, uh, to to watch out for, or be on the lookout for. Read verse 8 with me. He says, take, and he said, take heed that you not be deceived, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. We'll stop right there. Remember the overall context here is Jesus responding to the disciples' questions about when these things will take place and what will the sign of his coming be. Jesus begins verse 8 with an exhortation to take heed. Again, he's warning them about what is to come in the future. He tells them to take heed that you not be deceived. And so Jesus is warning his disciples about a coming deception, but not just any sort of deception. It will be a religious deception. Many will come in Jesus's name saying, I am he. Now, I teach and read from the New King James Version. Many of you guys know that, okay? And if you are reading from the New King James Version, you may notice how the word he is in italics. You see, the editors of the New King James Version Bible, they use italics to indicate a word that's not actually found in the original manuscripts, but they add it in to help with the overall context of how they think it should be read in English. I think they did us a, dis, a, a, a not. they didn't do us a solid here, okay, in doing so. Because if you look at it, We understand that what Jesus really said is that many are going to show up claiming to be I am. Okay, Now that should ring a bell for us. The words I am is the title which God used to refer to himself when Moses asked God how he should respond to the Israelites if they ask him the name of God. God told Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. And what Jesus is saying here is that many will come in Jesus' name claiming to be God, claiming to be the great I am. There are all sorts of people Throughout history that have come and tried to claim themselves to be deity, many even calling themselves Christ. Even today, you guys, there are people out there who claim to be Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, there's a guy down in Brazil who calls himself Henry Cristo a guy named Moses in South Africa, another guy in Siberia, a cross-dresser from England, a taxi driver in Zambia, an ex-software manufacturer in Australia who claims he is the reincarnation of Jesus and that his wife is the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene. There was even a guy in Japan who was a politician that went by the name of Yesu Matayoshi who claimed to be Jesus Christ. He actually died just a couple years ago in 2018. And by the way, he did not rise from the dead, okay? He was not Jesus Christ. You see, all of these people claiming to be Christ, claiming divinity, and each of them, you guys, you would not believe this. Well, maybe you would. I don't know. Each of them have a very significant following of people that actually believe them. And they will worship them. And they think that they really are Jesus Christ come back in the flesh, Ever since Jesus ascended, there have been those who have tried to claim to be the Messiah, who've claimed to be the Christ. Jesus also warned about those who go around saying, The time has drawn near. These are those who try to do date setting. They try to claim that they know when Jesus is going to come back. They often will claim to have figured out uh, through Scripture or some hidden message within Scripture. Uh, I believe more often than not, they'll claim some sort of divine revelation. A special dream or vision given to them that let them know the day and the hour of Christ's return. But Jesus says in Matthew's account of this very teaching, in his all of it discourse, that no one knows the day and hour, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The Father is the only one that knows the day and hour of Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. The disciples even asked Jesus after the resurrection, just prior to his ascension, about the timing of the restoration of the kingdom into Israel, speaking of course of Jesus' coming and establishing a kingdom as the Messiah. And Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. If God wanted us to know the exact day and hour, he would have told us, okay? but he didn't. And anyone that comes along and says they know the day and the hour, they are not speaking on behalf of the Lord. Do not trust them. Do not waste your time listening to what they have to say. They are only trying to deceive you. Now, I think another thing we should be mindful of and watch out for is those who are constantly trying to point to world events and claim that Jesus is coming back. Because this is a fine line, I believe. I do believe we need to be watchful and we need to be ready. And we should pay attention to things that are happening in the world and how they could potentially connect to biblical prophecy. And I do think that the world is ripe for the return of Jesus Christ, and I do hope that it is soon. And I look at the world and I wonder how much longer the Lord can wait before bringing His judgment upon the earth. But though I want Christ to return soon, and I think it is possible that He could return soon, okay, I believe it could be at any moment. I don't make dogmatic statements about the timing of His return because I really have no idea when He's going to come back. Again, I I hope it's soon, and and I'm going to live as if it could be at any moment, but I'm not going to go around saying the time has drawn near because I, I don't know when the time will be. So we need to be careful. We we need to exercise discernment and be wise. Jesus says at the end of verse 8, Therefore do not go after them. Do not follow them. Do not have anything to do with those who either claim to be Jesus or God or any who try to say they know when Jesus is coming back or even those who are constantly saying, you know, trying to warn us, Hey, the time is now. Look at this is happening. The time is now. The time is now. We don't know when the time is. All we can say with certainty is that each day that passes is one day closer, But other than that, we can't say much else. They don't know what they are talking about when people start talking like that. They are leading you astray. They are deceiving you, and it's all part of the deception Jesus warns us of here in his Olivet Discourse. And so how do we avoid being deceived? Jesus warns us, don't be deceived. Well, how do we not be deceived? How do we ensure that we don't get off track or misled It's by knowing the truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We have the truth, you guys. We have God's word given to us, the scriptures, and we need to make sure that we stick to them. Paul exhorts us, test all things, okay, to hold fast to what is good. The beloved disciple John writes, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to play the part of the good Bereans, who received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so do not be deceived. Know the word of God and what it teaches, okay? Test everything against it. Make sure what you are being taught lines up with the entirety of the message of God's word. God has given us the resources needed in order to avoid deception. We just need to use them, okay? Well, Jesus warned his disciples about religious deception, how it would be widespread, but that's not all. Take a look at verse 9 for another thing Jesus warned us about. He says, But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. The second thing Jesus warned his disciples about was that there would be wars and commotions. Uh, The word commotions, it speaks of states of upheaval or instability. It's uh, a word that speaks of rebellions and insurrections. Wars and commotions and the like, they have been going on ever since the first century and really throughout all of history. Jesus is describing the road to the end and how it will be marked with continual turmoil between various groups of people. Conflicts, wars, and battles will be constant. Jesus said... In connection to these wars and these commotions that take place, that we are not to be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And so we understand here that Jesus is answering the disciples' question about the sign of his coming and the end of the age, because that's what he's talking about. The end will not come immediately. And he basically is saying that wars and commotions will be ongoing, they are not necessarily a sign that he will be coming back. Jesus said these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. There will be a delay prior to his return. These things will take place, but it doesn't mean that he's instantly going to come back when there is religious deceptions and wars and commotions. These things will be ongoing leading up to the end, but there will be a delay. The, The end won't come immediately. That word immediately, it means without delay or without hesitation, with no time intervening. And so the fact that Jesus says it won't come immediately means that there will be a delay. There will be an intervention of time before the end comes. How long of a delay? Well, the Bible doesn't say specifically. But it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, and the angels declared, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 11 tells us. He's going to come again. Jesus is coming back. When? I don't know. But I think it's important that we comfort and encourage one another with this truth. Peter warns us in his second epistle about how scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, Peter tells us that people will come in the last days, and they will mock believers and their belief that Jesus Christ is coming back. And they'll basically say, you know, all you Christians have been saying Jesus is coming back for years and years and years, and he still hasn't shown up. Things just continue just as they are normally. You know, you guys are crazy. Peter knew that that's what was going to happen. And he said, we must remember, or we must remember what Peter writes in response to this type of thing. He writes reminding us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but as long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is coming back, but He's patiently waiting for those who have still yet to surrender their life to Him. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but gives this time we have now to to repent and to get right with Him. He is long-suffering and patient and kind and compassionate, And I don't know about you, but I'm eternally grateful that he didn't come back prior to 1998 when I gave my life to him. And I'm sure that there are some here today who are glad he didn't come back five years ago. Or there may be even some of you here today that would say, man, if he would have come back two years ago, it would not have been good. And so we must graciously and patiently wait for the Lord as he works on the hearts and lives of those around us. He's coming back, but he wants to add as many as possible to his kingdom in the meantime. Mm Let's continue on. Take a look at verse 10. He said, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We'll pause there. Jesus says here in verse 10, that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, isn't that the the same as wars and commotions that he spoke about in verse 9? Perhaps, but uh, maybe not, okay? There may be more to this. The word nation here is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnicity from. This word speaks of belonging to a social group that has a common national or cultural tradition, not necessarily country against country when we think of nation against nation. This is ethnos against ethnos. The world is filled with examples of ethnic conflict. Different people groups rising up against other people groups, not necessarily from one country to another, but from one people group against another. This is happening all over the world. The civil war in Syria, okay, which consists of numerous different people groups, has left more than half a million people dead. Okay? That genocide is happening still today in, in places like Myanmar and in South Sudan and Iraq and in Syria. Jesus said that these things would be part of the events that take place prior to the end of the age and is coming. He speaks of kingdom coming against kingdom, and again you maybe think, well, this is the same as wars and commotions and nation against nation. Okay, but I could, I think it could be pointing to something else. The word kingdom is in the Greek is basilia. It's used 162 times in the New King James Version of the Bible, and it's most commonly used in reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is a spiritual kingdom. Perhaps kingdom against kingdom is more aptly speaking of the spiritual battle that rages on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Whether we acknowledge or not, you guys, we must understand that we are involved in a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle has been raging on all around us throughout history. Paul writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You know, I I think I will suggest to you, and I'm not trying to be political, okay, but I will suggest to you that today... In Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is what I believe to be an example of this idea of kingdom coming against kingdom. The conflict, it's not about land. It is a spiritual conflict. This is a conflict between two spiritual entities, Jews versus Muslims, Judaism versus Islam. It isn't about the land. It's about one kingdom wanting to completely wipe out and destroy another kingdom. And okay? look at the history tells you it really isn't about the land. Israel has continued to give more and more land away in hopes of it bringing peace, but to no avail because it isn't about the land. It is a spiritual battle between two kingdoms that will continue to go on. Doesn't matter how much land is divvied up or separated or divided, and we give it all the Palestinians, we give it all the Israel. It will not end. It is a spiritual battle. Let's continue. We'll note a few other things Jesus said would come. Read verse 11. He said, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Four different things are listed out here in verse 11 as things that will be ongoing and taking place before Jesus is coming and the end of the age. Jesus said there will be great earthquakes in various places. Listen, earthquakes happen all the time. The National Earthquake Information Center locates about 20,000 earthquakes around the globe each year, okay? Uh, From 4.0 on up to the biggest in magnitude, okay? The earth has been shaking and quaking throughout time. Again, the things listed here are not necessarily signs of the end times. Okay, if a big earthquake happens, we don't all panic, say, you know, Jesus is coming back right now. Look, this big earthquake just happened, right? This is a sign. No, it's not, okay? Don't do that. He said that there will be famines. And just this last year, I believe it was, the world's estimated population passed the 8 billion mark. 8 billion people that make for the world's population. It is estimated that 1 in 9 people suffer from chronic undernourishment. That's nearly 900 million people that suffer from undernourishment. World hunger is on the rise, reports say. Studies show that from 2019 to 2022, the number of undernourished people grew by as many as 150 million, and they attribute this crisis to uh, conflict, climate change, and COVID-19 pandemic, according to these sources. Places like East Africa, Yemen, and Northeast Nigeria are in the grip of an unprecedented and devastating food crisis. You see, as citizens of, of highly developed nations of, of the United States, uh, uh, from Japan as well, we rarely feel the effects of, of hunger and starvation. But people all over the world today are starving. We complain about you know, the price of eggs and, and other readily available groceries, but there are people in this world that are literally starving to death. Okay. And there are a lot of them. Jesus said there would be pestilences as well. Okay? Can you say COVID? You know, <laughs> that, That's what a, a pestilence is. Okay? A pestilence is any deadly infectious malady or disease. Okay? COVID-19. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about COVID because I know it's a touchy subject, but these sorts of things are occurring all the time. Okay? There's the uh, Ebola viruses, there's monkeypox viruses, there's bird flu, there's swine flu, there's the regular common flu, there's the dengue fever, there's yellow fever, there's measles, there's hepatitis, there's HIV, there's malaria, and the list goes on and on and on of these infectious diseases. Listen, our world is infected, okay? And it isn't going to get any better, okay? At the end of verse 11, Jesus said, "...there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven." This is speaking about things that will take place up in the sky. There will be things in the heavens that people are very concerned about, terrified about. An article I read on Forbes.com told of a recent survey they had conducted asking people about their perceptions and feelings about space, and the results were that many are terrified. 97% of the 20,000 people surveyed around the world said they saw space as a threat, One in nine people are terrified of what could happen in space. According to Jesus, people are justified to be scared. He says there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Jesus continues in verses 12 through 19, speaking about another thing that will be ongoing in the future. Read it with me, verses 12 through 19. He says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will churn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls." Here in verses twelve through nineteen, Jesus warns his disciples about coming persecution now jesus 's warning was definitely for his disciples during their day in Acts chapter four, Peter and John, they were imprisoned they were brought before the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin, and they were beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. It was also for the rest of the Christians in the first century church and even throughout history. If you read through uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can learn of some of the afflictions and tribulations that followers of Christ went through during history. Even to this day, people are experiencing persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. just read an article uh, this morning about um, a lady in the UK who was arrested for praying silently, Um, and uh, it's crazy that Praying silently uh, gets you arrested in the UK because she did it uh, nearby a abortion clinic. Praying silently, um, and they arrested her four counts of um, some sort of uh, malicious, you know, evil intentions for praying silently. <laughs> okay, persecution for those who uh, name the name of Christ will be ongoing and we see that going on today in the book of second timothy paul wrote something to timothy about persecution that is a bit unsettling he said this yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay? Now, I know that that is not anyone's favorite Bible verse. Okay? No one has 2 Timothy 3.12 up on their wall at home, you know, celebrating. Oh, yeah, look at 2 Timothy 3.12. What a wonderful promise for us. Okay? All you have to do is desire to live a godly life, and you are guaranteed suffering at the hands of persecution. See, even if you desire it but fail, you still are going to be persecuted. So my encouragement is do it right, okay? Because you're going to be persecuted anyways. Live a godly life. Don't fail at it. Just do it. You're going to be persecuted either way. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica that they were appointed to afflictions and that they shouldn't be shaken by them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. In fact, he told the believers in Rome that we as followers of Christ ought to glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And so we see the promise of God in his word to use the tribulations, the trials and the difficulties, the persecutions we go through to produce in us something greater. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As we go through different forms of trials and tribulations and persecutions, let's keep our eyes upon the Lord and realize the victory that we've already obtained in Him and trust that He will see us through it all. Interestingly enough, Jesus said at the end of verse 12 that the persecution will be for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 13, he states how this persecution will turn out for them to be an occasion for testimony. Your translation may read something about being a witness. That word testimony is the Greek word martyrion. It's where we get our English word martyr from, which means some will end up giving their life as part of of their testimony or their witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus instructed his disciples that they were to settle in their hearts, not to meditate beforehand or worry about what to say in their defense, for he promised he would give them a mouth and wisdom which all their adversaries would not be able to contradict or resist. Of course, we see evidence of this happening during the first century church when we read through the book of Acts. Stephen, in his address before the Sanhedrin, is probably one of the best examples of this. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke powerfully against the religious leaders as stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and how they always resisted the Holy Spirit. It was a powerful demonstration of God working in and through Stephen, giving him the words that he needed to speak there before the religious leaders. Verse 16 and 17 lets us know that this persecution will not just be from the hands of our enemies or from religious zealots, But it will happen amongst even the closest of us, amongst family and loved ones. Parents and brothers, relatives and friends will betray us and even put some of us to death. We will be hated by all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Again, not a promise that we like to proclaim or or celebrate as believers in Jesus Christ. But despite the hate and persecution that will be experienced, Jesus says something very peculiar. He says in verse 18, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Now, Jesus has very clearly indicated that many will die at the hands of their persecutors. So what is this promise about not a hair of our heads being lost mean? Okay? Well, I think when we think of that phrase, oh, not a hair of your head will touch, we kind to of think this idea, you'll be untouched or, or unscathed. Okay? That is not what Jesus is saying. The word lost is very descriptive. It doesn't mean that we won't be untouched or unscathed through it all like you may think. The word lost here is a very strong word used to indicate complete destruction. It means to perish. It's used to speak about eternal death. And it's used within the scripture to distinguish between physical death. Jesus' promise to all of his followers is that while we may experience physical death, Rest assured, not a single hair of ours will be lost when it comes to our eternal destination. We will not perish, but we will be saved for all of eternity. And Jesus gives one final exhortation in verse 19, stating, by your patience, possess your souls. The word patience in the Greek is different from the word used to describe God as long-suffering or patient. This Greek word, according to my lexicon, says that it is specifically associated with hope, and refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. And so this is a very specific word that's used here. As believers, we must patiently endure the sufferings and persecutions of this world, looking to the eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's part of our maturing process, according to James. It's James who writes another not-so-favorite portion of Scripture, when he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That same Greek word from our text. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As we walk with the Lord, God will provide us all that we need to patiently endure. Romans 15 tells us that God, the God we serve is the God of patience and comfort. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that we will patiently endure, living for that hope of the eternal. As Romans 15, 13 exhorts us, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit within us, we will persevere. And we will, by our patience, possess our souls. And so Jesus said that all these things would take place. Religious deception, wars and commotion, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdoms, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, signs from heaven, and great persecution. And we have seen these things take place, just as Jesus said, throughout history. But I want to share something with you that isn't shared here in Luke's gospel, but's found in both Matthew and Mark's gospel when it came to Jesus' description of these events that would be ongoing. Both Matthew and Mark describe these events as the beginning of sorrows. And I actually like how the NIV as well as the ESV translate the phrase Beginning of sorrows. They translate that phrase as the beginning of the birth pains. Matthew 24, verse 8. And although I have not experienced birth pains myself, and I'm not going to lay claim to, I don't want any, you know, evil eyes acting like I know what I'm talking about, okay? I'm not trying to say that, okay? But I don't know from experience, okay? But I do know a few things about how birth and labor pains work, okay? Okay? You see, labor pains, they come and go, right? Sometimes there's even false labor that we call Braxton Hicks, Braxton Hicks' contractions aren't even real labor, but those will be felt at at first, right? I I recall rushing Farah to the hospital when we were pregnant with Jonah, our second, because Farah thought she was starting to go into labor, and, and we went to the hospital, and we waited... And we waited, and we waited, and nothing happened, and so they just sent us home with a nice little bill. Hey, here's your bill. And I'm oh, like, man, this is not good. Uh, and, and about a week later, it was a, a Wednesday night with our midweek service about to start. Pharaoh once again thought she was going into labor. Huh. Well, I wasn't about to miss church just to go wait at the hospital and pay another bill yet again. And so I told her, just hang out in the nursery and make sure uh, before we drive out of the hospital again. I don't want to go through that all over again, okay? Now, that was a mistake, okay? <laughs> you should have seen the looks I was getting from all the other moms there at the church all night, Wednesday night. Do you know Farrah's down in the... Nur- oh, yeah, she's, she's fine, you know, she'll be okay, right? And so um, a word of wisdom to you guys, Okay. If your wife ever tell you she's going into labor, just take her to the hospital, okay? Even if they just send you back home, okay? That's okay. It is far better to just be sent back home than to deal with um, what will take place if you don't take her, Okay? (laughs) Um, I did wait until church service was complete. Uh, Pharaoh was in the nursery in active labor the whole time. And by the time I got her to the hospital, uh, Jonah was born just a couple of hours after that. And I thank God that she didn't have him in the nursery at the church. Um, But I understand labor pains. I understand they come and they go and, and whatnot. But the one thing we do know is that when the baby is coming, the labor pains usually intensify and they come more often, right? I believe Jesus is describing these things as birth pains because as the days draw near for his coming, these types of things will intensify, they will increase in number. And so while these details are not specific signs of his immediate return, It may be that Jesus is telling us that the frequency and the intensity of these things can be clues to the soon arrival of His coming. When we see religious deception on the rise and gaining momentum, when we see wars and commotions picking up and escalating to more and more extreme measures, When we see more and more nations, different people groups, rising up against other people groups and slaughtering them simply for being different. When we see spiritual battles heat up. When the spiritual kingdom becomes more and more under attack. When these attacks become more and more frequent, more and more intense. When earthquakes increase in frequency and intensity, along with famines and pestilences, know that the time is drawing near. Know that these are the beginnings of sorrows, the beginnings of birth pains, and something is about to be birthed. We don't want to go around saying, oh, look at this, this is the sign he's coming. No, no, but we want to pay attention to those signs. We want to see, are, are these incre- increasing? Are they intensifying? You know, if they're like labor pains, we know that, yeah, the closer it gets to the birth, the... the more intense the, the more frequent they occur and so we want to understand these things but not panic everyone understand all right something's going to be birth lord willing we'll look at what's to come next time we gather together next week i hope to see you guys here next week as we continue in Jesus's all of it discourse Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the opportunity that we have to look into it, to understand um, aspects of this um, incredible teaching that you've given on um, prophecy. And Lord, we know and understand that um, religious deception will abound, Lord, and it has uh, throughout history, Lord. And we understand that the need, the importance of knowing and understanding your word that we might not be deceived. And so, Lord, give us a hunger for you and a hunger for your word, a hunger for Bible prophecy, Lord. Not that we would become lunatics or or crazy uh, people crying, the world is coming to an end all the time, but that we might discern, that we might know uh, the times and understand things that you've given to us as indicators And so, Lord, I pray, uh, give us wisdom. Give us insight into your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be with us as we uh, experience these things. Lord, we've experienced uh, pestilences and um, persecution and other things, Lord, and it's ongoing. Uh, Be with us, strengthen us. Um, Holy Spirit, give us everything that we need to endure to that day you call us home. And so, Lord, We just confess our need for you. And uh, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to possess, uh, by our patience, through our patience, possess our souls, Lord, to just know and trust in you and uh, your ultimate uh, plan for us. We thank you for your word and this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.